Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 223. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, here we are once again, parked at the place where we anticipate uh, being fed from your word and uh, soaking up the goodness and mercy of your spirit. Um, we enjoy spending these times together with one another. At least I know I do. I pray that the students who uh, engage with me during these times are also um, uh, enriched and blessed uh, by the material and by the discussion and that we are all working towards the goal of obviously um, glorifying your name and honoring your kingdom and building up um, uh, uh, that which you are establishing during this time. Um, Lord, we are your ambassadors and we seek to to be pleasing to you and live lives that are um, worthy of the sacrifice that you uh, um uh, that you you poured out for us so thank you father for this opportunity and for the responsibility that it represents to teach truth and to to um uh present um the word of god in a way that is challenging and yet at the same time um encouraging so uh thank you lord uh for the material um help us to continue to uh be patient with one another and to bless one another and to learn how to forgive one another uh as we continue to um build up one another in this great body of messiah uh be with the students who wanted to join tonight but for whatever reason weren't able to join so bless all of those who join us after the fact in the youtube video and itunes podcasts and the the other uh methods that the teaching goes out around the world and we'll be careful lord to give the praise and the glory of yeshua Amen. Okay, here we are uh, in another live internet study. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and the first session, first hour long part of the study, is given over to Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. As you can see on your screen right now, this is the topical index uh, that we've been working from. Topics one through five are already done. We're currently in topic six. The Excursus of Antichrist per Robert Van Campen. And we're poised to turn to topic seven, Excursus, the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. And I believe we'll, we'll really be ready to hit that next week because I think we're going to finish uh, topic six tonight. So let's jump in where we left off. We are talking about these seven significant parallels between the Antichrist, who is future from our perspective as futurists, and this antichrist prototype or shadow who already hit the scene the man known as antiochus epiphanes so um we're working from uh robert van campen's book the sign and in that book he's got several chapters devoted to antichrist and i just decided to pull a few paragraphs out of one of those chapters so let's back up i kind of cliffhangered us last week with I read the first six of these seven significant parallels between these two gentlemen, Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived 200 years before Jesus, and the coming Antichrist, who's still future. And I left off with parallel number six, but let me back up and just read all of them. And then I'll read, there's this little uh, section at the very end that talks about the Jewish feasts that I think you're going to find uh, interesting. So, we've got these seven significant parallels when it comes to these two uh, uh Lee, uh, these two figures in history. Here's what Van Campen has to say. The following seven similarities or parallels of Antiochus and Antichrist are the most significant and should be watched for as the sequence of events begins to unfold in the last days. So this is uh, Van Campen's perspective. Let's see what he has to say. 
First, under the guise of friendship and the promise of protection, both of these men make covenants with the nation of Israel. We know that Antiochus made some sort of agreement with them, particularly with the priests that he had um, bought out right uh, back in that day. And then he turned around and um, reneged on his deal and um, decided he would uh, loot the temple and uh, set up his headquarters there for a while while he launched some campaigns against Egypt. And apparently uh, he decided uh, that it wasn't enough that he was going to rob the temples there and and uh, renege on his uh, covenant agreement with Israel. He decided, um, why don't I go ahead and set up some idols and uh, sacrifice uh, a few swine and pour their blood out on all of the articles and just you know, make a mess of this whole place. And of course, the abomination of desolation is what we're describing that took place historically. Second, according to Van Campen, as in the days of Antiochus, many in Israel, speaking of the future, will again yield to this diabolical servant of Satan after the signing of the covenant, again seeking to gain the favor of this powerful world leader. Israel has always been a place where she is kind of uh, vulnerable because she wants peace almost at any cost. And just like in the days of Antiochus, when we're looking at the days of the Antichrist, which are future, apparently Israel is going to be in a place where she's willing to make an agreement with whomever can seemingly agree or bring an agreement between her and her immediate uh, surrounding Arab uh, neighbors, those who are always seeking to um, push her out into the Mediterranean Sea, right? Get rid of her, wipe Israel off the map, you know, the Palestinians or um, certain Arab groups or Iraq or Iran or Syria or Lebanon or, um, you know, whoever's always nipping at Israel's heels to, to, um, to, to dominate in that part of the world. According to Van Campen, third, after making their treaties with Israel, while Israel lives under a false sense of security, right, at least for the first part of that agreement, both men seek to conquer Egypt, then return to ravage Israel and desecrate her temple. What we're talking about is if you go back and read through Daniel chapter, say, 11, <clears throat> but start in Daniel chapter 8, then what you're going to find is as you're reading through Daniel's prophecies, you're going to find details that definitely describe what is now known as the history of the conquests uh, surrounding Israel uh, during the time, the 200 years before uh, the first century, 200 BC, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that time period around Greece, Rome, and the conflict there with um, the the, pe the people groups as it impacted Israel. But germane to our study here is that. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes himself wasn't really looking to conquer Israel so much as he was, he had some dispute with Egypt, right? And um, you can go back and read through your history books for all of those details to find out how that this prophecy in Daniel is written with such detail that the historians actually, those who are skeptics of the Bible, they actually even think that Daniel plagiarized history. They think that history took place first and then Daniel came along and sort of um, falsified information, made it look like it was a prophecy so that it would look like it was more accurate, made it, you know, made it seem as if Daniel was writing hundreds of years earlier from Babylon before the time period of that had took place. But reality, Daniel lived contemporary to uh, 
of those uh, first century events and then just pinned it as crafted in such a way so that it looked like it was older than it really was. You know, that's what the skeptics are going to spin. Of course, we who trust the word of God and know that God can speak of the future before things even happen, we realize that Daniel's prophecy can be 100% accurate because it's the Spirit of God who gave him those words. But the details that are given are so strikingly um, parallel between the two gentlemen that it's just, I mean, it's uncanny. It's its almost scary if it wasn't God's word that was doing it. So that's that's the point I'm trying to bring up is that you, you almost don't know where Antiochus ends and where the Antichrist picks up. There's so much overlap going on there that um, that's what we're looking at. Fourth, according to Anti uh, uh, Van Campen, both men proclaim themselves to be gods and demand worship from their subjects. And those Jews who refuse become the primary target of their wrath. In Antiochus' day, he turned on those Jews who um, eventually tried to resist him. We know from the book of Maccabees and the Hanukkah story that many of us are used to um, uh, reading uh, around that time of Hanukkah. We know that the, the family of the, um, the Maccabees resisted uh, Antiochus' forces, and eventually God allowed the, um, the um, control of Israel to be um, re-won and for Jerusalem to be um uh, liberated from Antiochus forces, and, and he was driven out, but the temple itself lay in ruin. And so, um, that appears to be uh, a parallel to what's going to happen when Antiochus uh, hits the scene. There will be some sort of temple that is um, available for him to defile again. Uh, it could be the, just the Temple Mount, but it's more likely going to be some structure that will facilitate uh, animal sacrifices because all the language seems to point in that direction about Antiochus bringing those sacrifices to a halt around the midpoint of the seven-year agreement and defiling it once again and um, upsetting the Jewish people. And of course, they're going to fight back like they did before. They're not just going to roll over and let Antiochus um, stamp them out. But there's going to be some, some warfare again. Um, so things are going to get heated up in Israel once again. Fifth, according to Van Campen, both tyrants have to contend with these groups of Jews who refuse to worship or serve them and who foment considerable dissension and opposition from the rural areas surrounding the city of Jerusalem when, and we're talking about the... Um, uh, the events that are more near to what we would today call the midpoint of the seven-year peace treaty or whatnot, um, uh, when they learn of the despots, right, when these Jewish people learn of the true character of this despot and the intentions regarding Israel. So when we're talking about Antichrist, it appears that when Israel and the Antichrist make this agreement at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, that's the time period in focus right now, Israel is going to be unaware of who he truly represents they're not going to realize that he is satan's minion satan's puppet um he's not really revealing himself to the rest of the world as well apparently there's still a lot of um cloak and dagger going on a lot of uh, secrecy behind his dealings although it's probably not going to be a secret that israel makes a deal a peace treaty deal that affects her and her immediate neighbors right there. I mean, can Israel really do anything in secret? The answer is no, obviously. So when significant peace takes place in the Middle East between the Antichrist, Israel, and her uh, immediate um, Arab-slash-Muslim neighbors, when that time takes place, it's probably going to be headlines on all the newspapers and news outlets around the world. However, we probably 
from a worldwide perspective won't be putting two and two together as to who the Antichrist truly is in this equation. But make no mistake, when the middle point of the week takes place, when he takes off his disguise and reveals not just to the rest of the world, but to Israel, who he truly is and what his true agenda is, which is obviously to um, take over Jerusalem, to uh, do away with Judaism as a religion, uh, the people of Israel as a people group, right? He begins this intense persecution that, according to Jesus' own words, are the most intense that have ever taken place on planet Earth, meaning they make the Holocaust look pale in comparison, which really, I, my mind can't even fathom the amount of horror and um, uh, uh, murder and uh, um, destruction uh, that's and, and martyrdom that's going to be um, pouring out in that particular day. But uh, what we're learning, again, is that at that point in time, Israel will realize that they've made a covenant with death, using the words of Isaiah, and they'll realize then that this guy is no um, uh, peace dealer. He's, he's not our friend. He is the devil himself, and, a, and this corresponds with the devil coming down to earth and being banished from heaven, uh, Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 12, and focusing all his, in, his intense efforts on um, manipulating this minion known as Antichrist. Let's keep reading Van Campen. Sixth, Van Campen says, following the defeat of Antiochus, we're talking about the parallels between these gentlemen, Following the defeat of Antiochus and the cleansing of the temple that had been defiled by him, right? Um, recall Hanukkah again. That's what Hanukkah, the word Chenukah in Hebrew, connotes this idea of rededication. That's what the root word suggests between um, Chenukah. It's uh, this idea that the temple was defiled by a pagan army, and before we can just start um offering sacrifices to god again well then the priest had to go in and rededicate it and you guys know the story of hanukkah with the the miracle of the oil and the menorah and etc etc so they rededicated the temple unto god well the temple is going to be defiled again or whatever is in, in existence whether it be a tabernacle or a temple or just the temple mount or the western wall the wailing wall whatever part antiochus defiles uh, i'm sorry uh, antichrist defiles in the future is going to need to be cleansed again so um uh, Van Camper reminds us that the nation of Israel initiated the Feast of Hanukkah, which is the Festival of Lights, or of Dedication. There we have it right there, the, um, the translation from the Hebrew over into English. This festival commemorates Israel's deliverance from that ungodly tyrant Antiochus, and it celebrates the restoration of the temple and the purification of its altar. In this um, discussion tonight on the parallels between Antiochus and Antichrist, we're going to have some details about future um, uh, feasts in Israel and how that uh, is relevant for us as we're looking at the end days. Perhaps the time period of the um, Antichrist's uh, uh, persecution of Israel and the having the recleansing of the temple, perhaps there will be some parallels uh, of corresponding to the time frames of the um, festivals themselves. We don't know for certain, but um, certainly some, many of the themes are going to be overlapping there. Van Campen reminds us that it also looks forward to, speaking of Hanukkah, it also looks forward to the eventual return of God's glory to the temple. That's the, really the bigger picture. If you remember from way back when we were looking at the 70th week of Daniel, from an overview perspective, maybe I'll overlay a, a graphic on the screen in post-production, but if you remember from the larger picture perspective, if we look at Daniel's 70th week, we begin with Antichrist, um, 
Mar uh, uh, establishing some sort of or strengthening some sort of covenant with Israel at the beginning of the week, and then in the middle of the week he turns on Israel and begins in, uh, intensely persecuting not just Israel but the church at this point in time as well. Read Revelation chapter twelve where he where um, the devil goes off to make war with uh, the 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 uh, the rest of the uh, the woman and the woman the rest of the offspring of the woman the woman in this um, picture being Israel. The rest of her offspring, those who would who refuse to um, uh, be subjugated to his policies during that day, but also when it talks about the, the woman and the rest of the offspring, rest of the offspring and those who um, name the name of Jesus Yeshua, then we're talking about not just Messianic Jews, but we're now talking about Christians who are alive and on around during the midpoint of the week. But the bigger picture that I'm um, trying to bring to your attention is that if we follow the play the events out towards the end of the week, right, that, that final three and a half years where we've got the Great Tribulation and the events that include the rapture of the church, the um, Jehoshaphat campaign, uh, the pouring out of the um, uh, Trump, the blowing of the trumpet judgments and the pouring out of the bold judgments, and then eventually the Battle of Armageddon as we're working right towards the end of the week. What we finally end up with is the, the um, return of Jesus bodily to planet Earth with the ushering of the physical kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. Well, that's what we're talking about when, when Van Kampen says, looking forward to the eventual return of God's glory to the temple. The temple will have been defiled and lay in ruins from the midpoint onward. There's no restoration of the temple. I mean, from the midpoint onward, whatever temple exists in the 70th week, um, the interim temple is what I call it. It's not... Ezekiel's temple, right? Don't get confused there. That's that's a millennial temple. But this is kind of an interim temple, the Antichrist temple. For all you know, all intents and purposes, it really is the Antichrist temple. Um, the Jewish people just think it's their temple for the first three and a half years. But at the midpoint of the week, the temple gets sacked again. Um, Antichrist sets up his uh, headquarters there in Jerusalem, starts launching all these attacks, uh, not just against Jerusalem, so establishing his base there, his power base there, but he's also going to start his worldwide domination. But um, eventually, when Yeshua comes back and defeats the Antichrist at the end of the week, into the seventh week, you know, after the battle, battle of Armageddon and the Antichrist and the, and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, well, then there needs to be this cleansing of the temple again. Well, that will facilitate another reminder of Hanukkah. So now we're looking at this seventh parallel that Van Campen reminds us of. The seventh parallel, the significance of Antiochus and Antichrist, is further underscored by the fact that the only two blowings of the trumpet of God in the Bible are related to these two men. I don't have time to flesh all that out right now. Pull out your concordance or your online dictionary, Bible dictionary, and look up um, lexicon whatnot, and look up the trumpets of God. Uh, I'll give you a little hint. In in uh, the letters to Thessalonians, Paul talks about the blowing of the trumpet of God, and um, John talks about that as well. So um, God, and then there's another reference to uh, the blowing of the trumpet found in the Old Testament prophecies, which it's a little harder for you to dig for. But the point that uh, Van Campen's bringing up is that when God himself, not an angel, not a seraph, not a uh, uh, an archangel or something like that, but when God blows the trumpet, at least that's the language that's used in the Bible, uh, the two times that show up, the first time is during the uh, time period of Antiochus, and the second time, or what Paul calls the last trump, 
is related to um, the dealings with Antichrist. Let's now look at this last trumpet of God using that theme. Um, I'm not just going to leave you in the dark, and neither is Van Campen. He's going to take now this theme of the blowing of the trumpet, which just a little, um, uh, uh, little, a uh, little bit of detail that might be of interest to you. There's a particular um, uh, messianic congregation that I'm um, a, kind of a kind of a, a long distance member of, in addition to my own uh, local congregation back in Colorado. But this congregation is in Pennsylvania. It's called um, Beth El Gibor Messianic Congregation, B-E-G. And a good friend of mine um, who's in the live class with me right now, he actually is the shofar blower there at the congregation. So he's intimately familiar with this idea of blowing the trumpet uh, in a connection with um, calling an assembly of the people and alerting us to the activities that that god is going to be um doing amongst his people remember the the trumpet in ancient israel the shofar in the hebrew word or the uh um um i can't remember the greek word the salpinks i think it's called uh the, the the metal trumpet but the um this particular trumpet in in ancient israel was blown for two primary reasons one of them was to call an assembly to gather the troops together to muster uh them together to do battle that the trumpet was used in those purposes but one of the other significant um purposes for the shofar use was to call together or to awaken god's people for religious reasons um the festival of trumpets itself the feast of trumpets which is on the jewish calendar shows up named rosh hashanah the beginning of the year but the um name given in leviticus 23 is a uh, yom truah and the word uh, truah is uh, a reference to one of the um trumpet sounds right there's uh one of the shofar sounds that are blown the 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 particular style of whether you hold out the bl the blast or whether you make it short and kind of da -da 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 broken up or whether it's like a, a um three blast you know da -da 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 -da, or da -da really long those sounds are are very specific to the way israel understood god is calling us uh to assemble together not for war but to worship the trumpet uh the festival of trumpets itself is god's clarion call to his people to wake up and be prepared to usher in the return of the king or the the welcoming in of the king himself awake O sleeper is the theme of the feast of trumpets of, of trumpets itself the festival of trumpets so let's talk about this last trump so um uh my good friend who's in the class right now, I'm not mentioning your name, but I hope uh, you have some insight that you can share with us one of these days if if, if, if you're up for it, uh, and I can record it and share it with the rest of my uh, YouTube crowd and stuff. We can talk about um, what is it like to be a trumpet uh, blower? What's it like to have that anointing on you where God uh, moves through you to blow the trumpet week after week for your Sabbath services and for your festivals and to um, play that part of, um, of announcing God's presence for his people. Um, think about that. Uh, maybe we can talk about that in, in one of these weeks to come. Let's look at Van Campen's final um, paragraph here. It's very short. We will finish Van Campen's notes tonight, and then I've got a, um, a summary that I put together, a summary of Robert Van Campen's notes on the Antichrist that I just kind of... Um, uh, kind of uh, cobbled together this week. A summary of what we've just looked at, what we're studying now. 
So let's look at Van Campen's final notes here on the trumpet. He talks about the first trumpet of God is prophesied in Zechariah 9, 13 through 16 in a near for our prophecy, which says that, quote, the Lord God will blow the trumpet. Remember, I said the Lord himself blowing it, not an angel, not a seraph, not some other um, subordinate or something like that, but Lord himself blowing the trumpet. When does he do it? When he would come centuries later to intervene on Israel's behalf against the Greeks and defeat Antiochus. So there's the first trumpet that God blows. Uh, and then um, Van Campen reminds us, we're reading from the book of the sign, and uh, this is a talking, uh, this is a, a discussion about the parallels between Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived 200 years before the first century, so 200 years before Christ and the, uh, and the time period of the New Testament, and the parallels between the later man known as Anti uh, Antichrist, who, according to the futurist model of eschatology, is supposed to hit the scene sometime in the future. I think we're very soon, uh, very, very close to his, uh, his um, activities. I think he'll probably um, be making his presence known very, very soon. But Antiochus, I'm sorry, uh, Van Campen talks about the trumpet blowings, first and second trumpet. The second trumpet of God will be blown at the rapture when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the trumpet of God. Notice it says the trumpet of God. And we have a reference from Matthew 24, 31, as well as 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, which we can compare from 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. And he does this to deliver the church and to quote slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end uh antichrist right this is paul writing in the thessalonian passage bring to an end antichrist by the appearance of his christ's coming right the second thessalonians 2 8 oftentimes we ask as christians why the rapture is even needed why is god going to rescue us from this um the uh uh tribulational period that we're uh, talking about, uh, you know, with the blowing of the trumpet and the sound of the shofar and the rapture. Well, there are many themes that are um, spoken of in the Bible uh, where that facilitate understanding of why the rapture would take place and why the trumpet would need to be blown. I mean, there are so many things. I, I'm just going to touch on a few of them real quick as I interject. Part of the idea is that uh, God's people, largely during the time when the rapture takes place, are largely going to be in compromise because of the um, the great tribulation and lawlessness of those days that Yeshua talked about, because of the Antichrist's rage and the wrath of Satan that's uh, being poured out on God's people, Jews and Christians who name the name of Yeshua. Because of all of this intense um, spiritual deception and because of the um, uh, what what God himself describes as the great delusion that he himself brought, a lot of God's people are going to be in compromise. They're going to be in um, uh, what we might call apostasy mode. And so we need the trumpet call. We need the shofar to awaken us as God's people. Even the very elect would be fooled if it or if it weren't if it were possible. We would even be fooled. We know we're not going to be because the spirit of God is going to protect us and preserve us. But at the same time, the church at large needs to be purified. Remember, it's Peter himself that talks about in his first letter about how judgment beginning in the house of God and about the, the intense trial that befalls you. So don't be alarmed by these things because the testing has to be poured out 
on the whole world and on God's people in specifically so that God can waken them up to prepare his bride for his return. So the whole theme of this uh, crucible, this um, uh, um, this refining, not just of Israel, but of the church, right? God's refining his natural lineage of Abraham, which is the Jewish people, natural, national Israel, but God's also refining and purging and purifying the spiritual line of Abraham, which is um, the Gentile church at large. So, um, the trumpet has to be blown in order to wake up God's people. Remember that theme of, of, of the Feast of Trumpets, awake, O sleeper, right? The trumpet is blown to wake us up to the fact that God is coming. The king is approaching. Get ready. Get yourself ready, right? Get your garments ready. Get get your life in order, right? Um, uh, settle your accounts, as it were. And so at the same time, one of the themes of the rapture is the rescue of the righteous from the wicked uh, Antichrist himself, right? God is not going to just let his people be slaughtered without any mercy. He's going to step in and intervene. He's, and so the rapture cuts short the uh, wrath of Satan in that regard. So that's why Paul says that um, the blowing of the trumpet and the rapture are going to slay um, the Antichrist. And Yeshua is going to do this with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end Antichrist by the appearance. The word appearance there is parousia. Parousia, I'm sorry. Uh, the second coming uh, is what we were referring to of his um, appearance or of his coming. And then uh, in this last paragraph, um, uh, Van Campen reminds us that in a remarkable way, this prefigures what will happen after the end of of the 70th week what's going to happen is 45 days after the defeat of antichrist so we'll bring up the uh the little chart again that shows the 70th week i'll do this in post-production those of you with me in the class just have to pretend like you're seeing a chart but when you look at the 70th week from at the beginning of the 70th week the seven year time period that's when antichrist signs the peace treaty that's when the beginning of the seals is broken by yeshua himself so the first seal is the white horse rider that's antichrist himself that's the beginning as we move from uh, left to right, looking at this um, chart, in the middle of the week, the seven-year period, there's the um, uh, what we call the abomination desolation, the midpoint of the week, Antichrist takes off his, his disguise, reveals himself, who, reveals who he is to Israel, the rest of the world uh, finds out who he is at that point in time as well, and the intense persecution, the great tribulation, you could say, starts at that point in time, the occupation of Jerusalem. Um, Israel, the you know the Israelis at the time who are in in near Jerusalem are told by Yeshua to flee, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But as we look at the far right side of the chart, the end of the seventieth week, the seven years itself, there's this what we might call thirty day reclamation period and and forty five day restoration period. Well, if we attack on those two extra days at the end of the seventieth week, which are spoken of by Daniel himself. Well, then we see the time for the rededication of um, the land of Israel in that particular part, uh, part Jerusalem. Uh, the temple was in ruins because of what Antichrist had already done. Jerusalem itself is already in ruins because of all the intense campaigns, the Jerusalem campaign, the uh, and uh, the Armageddon campaign, etc., etc. I mean, the land of Israel is a mess. Jesus comes back and has to rebuild and establish his his temple there. His this time it'll be the um, Ezekiel temple. And this is a temple that's going to last for at least a thousand years. Well, this is the 45 days after the defeat of Antichrist that um, um, 
Uh, Van Campen is referring to right here. He continues, For as will be shown in greater detail in chapter 22 of his book and the epilogue, in those days the redeemed nation of Israel will once again observe Hanukkah in a unique and resplendent way this time. Right? So we're talking about um, after the Antichrist has been defeated and after uh, Jesus has already returned, this is in parallel to what happened in the days of Antiochus, right? What happened? Antiochus went through Jerusalem, ravaged the temple, um, defiled it, right, with the, the, the pig uh, offering and the pig's blood or pig urine, or uh, I'm not sure exactly which historical account is accurate. You can go back and read through Maccabees or read through Josephus, etc., etc. And after the temple was defiled and, and looted and, and, and all of that, but Antiochus himself was driven out eventually, right? He went, went, went with his tail between his legs uh, back to his home, back somewhere in Syria, I believe, where he eventually died of a disease. But the, um, the point in the story is that after the Maccabees kicked his butt, right, what happened? They had to clean up the mess and rededicate the temple. Well, that's a parallel to what's going to happen in the future. Antichrist is going to go blast through Israel. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to make things a mess there. But eventually, he's going to get his butt kicked by Jesus himself and then... Uh, the temple is going to have to be rededicated. So um, this time of unique and resplendent um, dedication and remembrance of what is Antioch, or, uh, Van Campen say of the defeat of Antichrist. So we'll have a Hanukkah like no other Hanukkah uh, on that day because now we not only have defeated Antiochus, which is what the current um, Hanukkah celebrations commemorate, the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes, but what we will also have uh, in the future is an even greater Hanukkah celebration as we now commemorate the defeat of Antichrist himself. And so uh, Van Campen reminds us that in celebration of the rebuilding of the temple, not just by the Maccabean um, family this time, but by Christ himself and in recognition of the permanent return, not the temporary, but the permanent return of God's glory to his temple and that will be of of most um joyous celebration during that time wouldn't you have to agree i mean in the first uh hanukkah um celebration it was primarily jewish people who were celebrating because god had liberated them from this wicked despot ruler known as Antiochus Epiphanes, and allowed them to have the victory and to reestablish the temple, to get it cleansed and to, to take control of their own land uh, and their own um, uh, religious uh, observances, etc., etc. So it was a great celebration for the Jewish people, but there weren't any really Christians on the scene to participate. But this time, I can imagine, as the greater Hanukkah takes place at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, at the end of that um, seven-year time period when Antichrist is defeated by Yeshua, and the rededication of the temple takes place, and Yeshua uh, begins to rebuild his temple for the uh, millennial thousand-year time period. At this time, not just Jewish people will be celebrating, because number one, their Messiah will be there, and the blinders will be lifted, and all of Israel will now recognize who he is, right? This will be a time of Israel's salvation. Remember, Daniel was promised very early on in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, that there's these six things that God will accomplish for Daniel's people, and for the temple, and for the land of Israel, and for the people. And one of those things was the salvation of Israel, the bringing in of everlasting righteousness among Israel, and the final atonement 
for national Israel, where they recognize uh, this one whom they pierced and they mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, like Zechariah chapter 14 describes. So Israel will be celebrating um, uh, not just the rededication of the temple at this greater Hanukkah, but also celebrating finally the acceptance of their true Messiah, Yeshua himself. But guess what? Christians will be there as well this time. And so finally, Christians and Jews will have a chance to celebrate this one great Hanukkah, right? And uh, we'll have a chance to blow our shofars and celebrate together. So essentially, that will do it for um, the look at Robert Van Campen's chapter on the Antichrist. There's a lot more in the book. I only skimmed the surface. There's so much more that I could have hit uh, if this were a book study itself, but it isn't. So I encourage you to go out and get the book. I do endorse it. I have it sitting on my shelf right now. I'm looking at it right now. Um, get the third edition, right? That's the final edition that was put out around the year 2000. Uh, just before Mr. Van Campen passed away, went to be with the Lord himself. But the the third edition is the one you want to get of the sign. I'll flash a little screen grab Amazon. I'm, this is not an affiliate link or anything. I'm not getting any, um, uh, 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 what do you call it, pushbacks or, or um, any... Uh, uh, benefit from endorsing the book. I'm just endorsing it because it's a great book. So go ahead and pick up the book, The Sign by Robert Van Kamen. It's kind of a black cover. Um, uh, great book, eschatology uh, book. But the um, footnote there shows that this was pulled from The Sign Updated Edition, Crossway 2000 pages 144 through 151. What I want to do now, let me look at my um, time. Give me a second here. Checking something. Oh, yeah, I've got lots of time. Let me check my volume. That looks good as well. All right. What I want to do real quick is now, um, since we've been looking at Mr. Van Campen's notes for a few weeks, uh, let's go back and, and look at a summary of where we um, went, where we came from. I put together this summary this week. It's not very long. It's just a few um, paragraphs, and we'll be easily be able to get through all of this. And this will kind of um, park us at uh, being ready to begin to have this discussion in topic number seven about... The Antichrist, according to Joel Richardson, an excursus on that. Um, largely, we've been talking about what we might call the European model of the Antichrist, uh, where he emerges out of maybe a, a revived, what we call Roman Empire, Western version of Rome uh, model. Um, maybe he's more uh, what we might consider um, either Gentile uh, resembling type of Antichrist. But if we pour through the prophecies of Scripture, we're going to find eventually that there's a lot of details that could lend support to a different theory that the, that the Antichrist is going to rise up out of some sort of Arabic-type country, maybe an Islamic-type model, um, a, a revived Ottoman Empire instead of a revived Roman, which would kind of still fit the extension of Rome, but on the east side, right, from uh, Istanbul side of the a map, uh, eastern side of Rome, which uh, was eventually um, over uh, overtaken by the Ottoman Empire uh, a thousand years later. Anyway, so that's next week. If my schedule lines up and if all of the green lights fall into place, I'm still still got some red tape I need to cut through on my end. But if we can get all that put together, then that's what we're going to be looking at. So I hope you guys are looking forward to that very fascinating study, uh, if I may say so myself. Let's look at the summary of Mr. Van Campen's um, uh, notes on the Antichrist. And by the way, I don't think, per, let me say this uh, before I get started, I don't personally believe that the European model and the um, Islamic model actually have to clash. I think there can be some sy uh, synthesis between the two positions um, so where we can have a little bit of kind of... Um, uh, um, 
strengths from both sides and bring them both to the table and see how prophecy will allow us to uh, allow us to glean um the, the 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 take away the best parts of both of those particular models without them having to clash so um much like they've done historically in the past but we'll get to that in time let's look at the summary of what we learned as we um read through mr van Campen's notes this is my own little um summary that i put together and after this we'll draw this part of our study to a close and i hope that you can stick around for segment two here's my own uh notes that i put together this is a summary. According to Robert Van Campen's research, the notes from this chapter delve into the striking parallelism between Antiochus Epiphanes and Antichrist as outlined in the prophecies of Daniel. So this is a kind of a summary of where we have gone in this particular segment uh, of topic number six about this look at Antiochus through the um, lens of Robert Van Campen. I continue. Van Campen emphasizes in his book the resemblance in character and activities between these two despots, highlighting Antiochus' conquest and devastation of Israel during the 2nd century BC and the anticipated actions of Antiochus, I'm sorry, of Antichrist during the end times. So you see, there's a lot of um, detail that we find in Daniel, that we're going to talk about here in a moment, that we can gain a lot of insight from if we look first at what took place historically with Antiochus Epiphanes with a view towards the coming Antichrist who's going to be hitting the scene in the future. Um, my summary continues. We especially noted during this uh, segment how Van Campen references multiple chapters in the book of Daniel, most notably I say Daniel 11, 28-36, with this chapter to, uh, within this chapter to demonstrate the transition from Antiochus to Antichrist, underscoring the latter's self-exaltation um speaking of antiochus himself his blasphemous words against god and eventual prosperity until the time of divine judgment so in both cases what we find when we read not just through daniel but we find this when we read eventually later on through uh, paul's letters in thessalonians as well as john's later um details in the book of revelation we find that no matter how bad it gets for the people of god no matter how tribulational how how much heat is turned up during the time period of the tribulation god will always step in and rescue his people and in this regard we can see a direct parallel to what we're going to eventually talk about one day in my studies is the ex the, what we call the greater exodus principle um those in messianic circles are fond of reminding themselves that when they read through end time prophecy and they're studying the book like the book of Revelation, that there are parallels between what takes place at the beginning of the book, the earlier part of the book, like in the book of Revelation, I'm sorry, the book of Exodus, and the end of the book, the book of Revelation. So we have parallels there. We have a parallel between the first Exodus from Egypt of God's people and this greater Exodus, this final Exodus in the book of um, Revelation, where God's going to once again rescue his people from the cruel oppression of these wicked rulers who seek to destroy and to judge Israel and the people of God. Part of those parallels include the supernatural protection from God himself, just like in the Exodus, where God protected Israel during the ten plagues with the kind of what we call the Goshen principle. Um, Israel didn't suffer the intent 
intense brunt of all the plagues, at least when we started to get into the latter end of the plagues. Um, the, some of them affected them, right? But for the most part, the principle is that God knows how to protect those who are his own, those who are in covenant with him. And so we'll see parallels to that as well as we get uh, towards the end of the time. Yes, there will be persecution, though. There was persecution in, in the times of the pharaohs, right? God's people suffered under the cruel hand of the pharaohs. Um, but God didn't forget. That's the point I'm, I'm, I'm trying to highlight, is that God did not forget his people. He heard their cries, he heard their groanings, and he sent a deliverer, right? Moses and Aaron, he sent um, his spokesman to tell Pharaoh face-to-face, -face, let my people go. Well, we're going to have the two witnesses in the book of Revelation who are also going to be defying Antichrist during that time. We're going to have uh, the 144,000 uh, uh, Jewish people uh, who were supernaturally protected with a seal on their forehead, who are also defying the Antichrist. And we'll also have our um, modern-day uh, Maccabees in that time period who are going to be, be resisting uh, the program of the Antichrist. But ultimately, it's God himself who is going to step in and win the day for not just his people, but for his kingdom and for his Messiah and establish his son's kingdom here on planet Earth. So... Um, that's the point that we can look forward to with great expectation is knowing that God is going to rescue us during that time. Eventually, we're going to have to go through some things first uh, to refine us and to purify us and to um, help us to um, understand who we truly are as the bride of Messiah and God's people. Right. But ultimately, prosperity will um, be ushered in. And then uh, Antioch, uh, what we learned during this um, summary is that, to be sure, the use of the term small horn in Daniel to describe both Antiochus, I'm sorry, Antichrist in Daniel 7 and Antiochus in Daniel 8 solidifies the intended connection between these two figures that we studied, Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, Antichrist himself. Let's continue with this summary and, and uh, conclusion. What is more, during this uh, topic, we learned uh, Van Campen draws attention to Christ's mention of Daniel's prophecy in Matthew 24, 15, specifically in relation to the, quote, abomination of desolation, right? That was the verse that I'll flash a little screen grab in post-production where um, Yeshua talks about how that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then Matthew inserts the little commentary, the comment, the editorial comment, let the reader understand, right? And then Yeshua says, at that point in time, well then, at that point in time, those who are in Judea, you guys need to get up and get out. You need to flee. Um, this uh, passage in, in Matthew 24, 15 is paralleled by the uh, passage in um, Luke chapter 21, where the details there are more given over to the uh, military campaign that takes place during that time period. And so instead of Yeshua saying, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, instead he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by her armies, and then the wording picks up the same as in Matthew. So this lets us know when we overlay those two verses, the one in Matthew and the one with Luke, we see that's the same time period. The abomination of desolation, uh, the desecration of the temple, takes place at the midpoint of the week, corresponds with Antichrist um, uh, 
taking over Jerusalem and beginning an intense campaign against Jerusalem to occupy her and, and set his um, um, headquarters up there, which eventually he will. Let's keep reading this uh, summary. I go on to say that this term, the abomination of desolation, originally applied to Antiochus in Daniel 11.31, is invoked by Jesus to allude to the actions of Antichrist. So we're talking about a term that has dual usage. Remember when Yeshua mentioned those phrases, those term that those terms in the Gospels, well, then Antiochus had already come and gone. Right? It was past history. And yet he says, when you see this happen. So this clues us into that there must be something future. Of course, we know that in partial fulfillment or near-term fulfillment, prophetic telescoping again. We know that Yeshua was referring to uh, what took place in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the eventual 130s with the expulsion of the Jews from Jerusalem. So we know those events were in view as well. But if we carefully examine all of the details of what Yeshua is describing uh, in his um, all of the discourse and correlate that against not just Daniel, but correlated against uh, eventually Paul, what Paul wrote in Thessalonians and what John would go on to write in Revelation. If we correlate all of them together and corroborate all the details, we find that Yeshua's warning in Matthew 24, 15 actually has a farther fulfillment, a um, future fulfillment, which corresponds to the uh, Antichrist in the end of days. I go on to say that this parallel usage supports the intended meaning of the scriptures and strengthens the correlation between the two despots. And then I think um, I've got a few more paragraphs here, and we will finish this tonight, so just uh, hang on there. I go on to say, Van Campen, we're looking at a summary. Van Campen argues that while the desecration of the temple by Antiochus in 168 BC fulfilled the prophecy in its immediate context, a future fulfillment awaits during the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, just like I mentioned, aligning with the, the activities of Antichrist, which is exactly why we're studying um, the activities of Antichrist. And this aligns with his activities in the last days, including the desecration of a rebuilt temple. And that's those are details I just mentioned earlier. And then as we're winding down our study, again, we will finish this tonight. These are my own summary statements to the... Um, uh, topic six that we've been looking at with Antichrist per Robert Van Campen. Through the examination of Antiochus as a historical figure, this chapter in his book, The Sign, based on Van Campen's research, provides valuable insights into Antichrist's strategies and the events of the end times. These are my own notes that I put together uh, so that we can look at a summary and draw our study to a close here. I go on to say the striking parallelism between these two despots serves to illuminate the meaning of the prophecies and offers a framework for comprehending future occurrences associated with the reign of Antichrist. Are you understanding what I'm trying to say there? We studied Antiochus Epiphanes so that we can be better prepared for when, Anti uh, for when Antichrist himself hits the scene and begins to do all of these things. And using Daniel as our cue... <laughs> We don't know exactly when, I'm sorry, we don't know, yeah, we don't know exactly when Antiochus is going to hit the scene, but we do know that um, the words of Daniel will have to come to their fullest conclusion at that point in time, because there's no other wicked rulers that are going to hit planet Earth. This is the final seven years of, of humanity's 
rebellious push to throw off God and his Messiah, like we read about in Psalm chapter 2, right? The, the nations raged at God's establishing his um, uh, righteous king on his holy hill. And so man is always going to resist God's uh, rulership and his authority over him because man is in rebellion against God. And so this last seven years is the final effort of not just humanity, but ultimately, ultimately the final uh, last-ditch effort by Satan himself to try to overthrow God's rule, to upset the kingdom of Messiah, to destroy the offspring of um, Abraham, both physically and spiritually, etc., etc. So this is the time period that we're looking at, the last seven-year um, uh, evil uh, effort by Satan himself, which, of course, we've read the end of the book. We know is not going to succeed. God is going to defeat the Antichrist um, with his uh, with the, the the arrival of his son on planet earth and that's a day to look forward to but we're using antiochus epiphanies as a pre uh, uh, um, a, a forerunner um and examining this particular event so i say in in closing in my uh summary here and with this i'll bring our study to a close uh in my summary i say in conclusion according to the research that mr van campen's uh, that Mr. Van Campen's presented in this chapter, I think I got a typo there, apostrophe S where there shouldn't be one. According to the research that, that Mr. Van Campen presented in this chapter, the parallels between Antiochus Epiphanes and Antichrist, as elucidated in Daniel's prophecies, reveal significant similarities in their actions and, as uh, we've noticed, uh, it, they underscore the importance of these connections in interpreting eschatological prophecy so do yourself a favor you want to understand end time events well then look at what took place in uh, partial fulfillment already in the book of daniel don't start and i'm saying this in closing as i look at my um a time here we're, we're ending a little early tonight we didn't take the full hour but that's fine if you want to better understand end time prophecy which is what the word eschatology refers to don't start with the book of revelation or the book of Second Thessalonians or the New Testament, go backwards into the Old Testament and begin to look for details about God's description of these last days. Look for terms like uh, the end of days or um, in the final days or in the last days or in that day. Um, um, those that terminology is going to clue you into the idea that, and we talked about this a long time ago as well. I'll flash a little graphic on the screen and post so you guys can follow along. That there's coming a day, the 70th week of Daniel is going to include this very significant event that the Old Testament, the Tanakh, already termed the day of the Lord. And that is essentially the outpouring of God's judgment upon the wicked beast kingdom that Satan will establish during that time period, what we would recognize as the New World Order, the final beast empire in, in um, Satan's long line of, of beast empires. Uh, this will be the eighth, the final beast empire. God will eventually, at some point in the um, scope of of events of you know cut this tribulation time short uh rapture his church and simultaneously begin to pour out judgment in retribution against the wicked beast system and against the wicked 
uh, rulers and against those unrepentant sinners of that day. And so it's going to ramp up and culminate in the final, of course, destruction or the final um, expulsion of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the, um, uh, the destruction of that final beast empire and then the establishment of God's righteous um, kingdom here on earth so we can usher in this final thousand years. The point I'm trying to highlight is that time period, that slice of history, as you can see on your screen in this 70 week of Daniel, there's probably a little segment there that's highlighted. The time period is already described in vivid detail in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. And so that is the time period that we can begin to study first in the Tanakh then we move into the New Testament uh, details with um, Paul's writings and Peter's uh, letters and eventually John's revelation, etc., etc. So that's my um, recommendation as you're studying end-time prophecy. Start back in the Old Testament or work your way towards uh, using the Day of the Lord and some of the other details, Antichrist, Antiochus, look at the parallels. Um, uh, make sure that you keep Jerusalem as your epicenter because um, the Bible itself is Jerusalem-centric. It's Israel-centric. Um, all of the events swirl around that area of the Middle East and other nations as they interact with Israel and Jerusalem, etc., etc. Um, don't be surprised if you're not finding significant prophecies, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that detail what's happening in America or uh, other parts of the world, Asia uh, or Europe or things like that. Why? Because the Bible is an Israel-centric book and uh, end-time prophecy is uh, central to Israel and Jerusalem and the temple and the activities surrounding um, the people in that particular area of the world. So it's, it's no um, wonder why um, our focus on uh, end-time nations and beasts and systems has to deal with nations that surround, that immediately impact Israel's borders right in that geographical area, right? We don't stray too far from that, so that's why we go the direction that we do. But that's going to do it for Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. I hope you can uh, join us again next week where... Bezat uh, which is Hebrew for Lord willing, will launch into topic number seven, excursus, the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. Um, we'll see what happens when that time comes, okay? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture at congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site 
essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Arya bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes to um, unpack this topic. We left off with looking at biblicalunitarian.com. As you can see on your screen now, this is a website about God, His Son, and His Son, Jesus Christ. They are a, um, a non-Trinitarian Christian denomination. They do not espouse the Trinity. They do not believe that God is three persons. They believe that God is one person and that his son, Jesus Christ, is fully human. He is not divine. He's not the second person of the Trinity, nor do they espouse to the notion that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Instead, per their model of God, there is God who is holy, there's God who is spirit. Thus, the word Holy Spirit used in the Bible either refers to God himself or it refers to a um, an anointment, an anointing that God confers upon his people, a gifting, an empowerment that God bestows upon his people uh, so that they can be especially equipped to do the work of God. Um, and that, in that way, it's an impersonal force from God, a power that, that is sent from God that infills us as believers. But it's not the third person of the Trinity that comes to live inside of us. There's only one person of God. His name is God. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah. His name is Adonai. And um, his son is exalted a uh, human being who now sits at the right hand of God the Father. So that's the biblical Unitarian model of God. Of course, we Trinitarians disagree. We believe that God is one, yet God is three, yet God is one. He's one God, but he's three persons. As James White is fond of saying, he's one what and three who's. He's one nature, one essence, one being, one God, and yet he's not one person. There are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, co-eternal, consubstantial, same substance, uh, co-eternal, all equal in that regard. One is not below the other in nature and in substance. And yet, in the hierarchy of God, there's the Father who's above the Son, who um, uh, begets the Son, right? Eternally begotten, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Uh, in in um, eternity past, meaning the Son has no beginning, yet He is eternally begotten by the Father. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is eternally um, sent by the Father and the Son. 
Uh, so there's the hierarchy in the um, what we might call the um, ontological nature of God. The, I'm sorry, not the ontological, but the um, economical nature of God. The ontological nature of God is that they're all equal, but the economic nature of God is that there's hierarchy, that Father sends the Son, the Son do, does the Father's bidding, and as a human being, the Son recognizes that God, the Father, is his God, and he receives the Holy Spirit just like we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the person of God in uh, who's sent uh, by God, dispatched by the Son, etc., etc. Uh, that's the economy of God. So we're having these discussions about this verse in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's, that's out of the NIV. Um, out of the NASB, it, it reads very similar, Psalm of David. The, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what we're going to begin to do now, we've already finished our look at Biblical Unitarians' explanation of this verse, where they're taking the position that the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Lord, God, is the human Messiah, Jesus. Let me now begin to turn to our own refutation of their position and provide a Trinitarian response to their position, while all the while not completely throwing their um, beliefs under the bus. I don't want you to interact with this study that way as i said over and over again i'll keep saying this at the beginning of this these types of studies i believe that there is room at the table for the biblical unitarian believer as long as he is a genuine believer because at the end of the day which one of us has a perfect understanding of god even we trinitarians don't have a perfect understanding and articulation of god there's still mystery to it and when i say mystery it's not that we can't understand it it's rather that god hid it from um the writers of the bible in the old testament and revealed it in the pages of the new so when we say there's mystery we're dealing with information limitation where where we can only deal with what the bible gives us we can't fill in with extra information even though the creeds did just that the creeds of the um, church fathers in the few centuries following the first century did their level best to try and fill in with information that the bible didn't actually give and fill in with extra greek words and terminology and nomenclature to help clarify what they understood the the trinity and the incarnation to be revealing to humans but the point i'm trying to highlight is that at the end of the day, we have to go back to what the Word of God says, and it becomes our primary authority, and it becomes the ultimate final authority as we um, rely on both parts of the Bible, the um, mysterious part of the Tanakh, as well as the incarnational part of the Apostolic Scriptures. And when we put those two together, we have the complete Word of God and the complete testimony of God giving us um, the articulation of what we now know as Trinity. So... Um, let me provide my own summary of BiblicalUnitarian.com's article on Psalm 110, verse 1. I put this together a few weeks back, and we're now ready to start using it. So, um, let's look at this. Uh, let me see how long it is. Just see, I've got... Uh, oh, it's very, very short. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Ariel. You did yourself a favor. So, 12 um, numbering points um, to look at. This is just a summary of their position this is what we learned when we um studied what they think on psalm 110 so let's just uh read these are my own notes psalm 110 states quote the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet end quote and i think i'm quoting from the nasb so point number one here's what we learned by way of um summary of what biblical unitarian has to say Trinitarian commentators often argue that 
my Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, in this verse refers to God implying the divinity of the Messiah. So um, let me just look at the verse again to show you what I'm talking about. In the verse in question, we have two Lords. We have Lord here, uh, the first rending, which is all caps, L-O-R-D. And then we have a second rending where the only the, ca the letter L is capitalized. According to the biblical Unitarian model, the first capital L-O-R-D is the Lord God Yahweh, Jehovah, right? To be sure, if we eventually we're going to look at this tonight, the Hebrew, which I'm going to read, is actually Y-H-V-H, the Tetragrammaton name of God, but it's rendered as capital L-O-R-D in most Bibles. But, by comparison, the second Lord, which has only a capital L, doesn't always show up this way in this version. You were going to see that there are other versions where, in fact, the Biblical Unitarian version that they use, the, the REV, Revised English Version, theirs has a lowercase l. It's because they believe that the second Lord is the human Messiah, the human King that God has established and exalted to sit at His own right hand. And so, the first Lord is the Lord God, Yahweh, and He speaks to the human agent. That's the Biblical Unitarian model. But according to the Trinitarian model, like I just mentioned in my summary, the first Lord is indeed the Lord God, Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, Hashem, right? The Lord or God, Jehovah, if you want to say it that way. But the second Lord is the Divine Messiah, who shares the same nature as God the Father, the second person of the Trinity, Yeshua himself, the Word made flesh. And therefore, the second Lord, he is equally human and divine. So, it is the Lord God, but it's the Father speaking to the Son, who are both divine, rather than only one person being divine and the other person being fully human. So that's what I say. Trinitarian commentators often argue that the my Lord uh, in this verse re refers to uh, God implying the divinity of the Messiah. Remember, the word God there can be understood as a classification label, almost like a family term, where, similar to Elohim, God is shared among the three persons. God the Father, that's first person, God the Son, that's second person, and God the Holy Spirit, that's third person. Thus, when we say that this my Lord is God, it's God speaking to God, but more um, detailed way, it's God the Father speaking to God the Son. The Lord said to my Lord. That's what we mean. So, in case you're wondering, well, how many gods are in that discussion? Well, according to the Trinitarian model, there's only one. Surprisingly, there's only one God. That's right. Despite what the uh, skeptics want to argue that they think we're saying, despite what the um, um, uh, those who hold to uh, uh, some form of um, tritheism or tritheism, uh, we, we Trinitarians do not believe in multiple gods. There's one God, right? Just like the Shema teaches us. All right, so point number um, two in my little summary of the biblical Unitarian position is that this interpretation is flawed. This is according to the biblical Unitarian. So they believe that we Trinitarians are arguing that the uh, my Lord refers to God. So they disagree with that position. Um, but they, they, they correctly understand our position. They just disagree with it. But they first have to articulate our position before they can have any um, uh, discussion on the matter, right? They first have to reproduce our own position accurately so that they can then um, 
claim uh, a better way to understand God. So uh, their second point that they bring up is that they believe that this interpretation is flawed. That is to say, they believe that the Trinitarian position is flawed. Third, when we review the Biblical Unitarian model, they believe that the Hebrew word translated as my Lord is Adoni, A-D-O-N-I, lowercase a, which always describes human masters or lords, lowercase m, lowercase l, never God. This is their position, and we're going to see why they believe this position is so. So I'm not going to talk about it just yet, but look at point number four. This is Biblical Unitarians' uh, discussion. This is what we learned by reading through their position. This is my summary of what they're trying to bring to the discussion. Point number four, the distinction between Adoni and Adonai, which refers to God, is crucial to understanding the verse. This is according to the Biblical Unitarian model. They're going to place a lot of emphasis on these two differing Hebrew words, Adoni and Adonai. So that's something we're going to look for as we begin our own refutation, our own answering their uh, position, we're going to have to peel back some of the technical terms ourselves in order to make sure, one, we understand what Biblical Unitarian is asserting, and two, we're providing not just our own assertion, that doesn't prove anything, assertion versus assertion doesn't solve anything. What we want to do in our um, answer is we want to provide refutation. We want to provide a Biblical answer and show how that their position is inaccurate. Again, we're not trying to throw Biblical Unitarians under the bus. I'm trying to bring them to the table of fellowship where we can have a more meaningful dialogue between the two denominations. Um, uh, I understand that some Trinitarians are just ready to label Biblical Unitarians as heresy and throw them all out together, but I'm not in that position where I can judge them because I can't judge their heart. I don't know their motives for um, wanting to reject the Trinitarian model. I don't know why they don't embrace all of the details of the Apostolic Scriptures and the mystery that was revealed between the pages of the New Testament in the Incarnation. I don't know why they come to the conclusions that they do. But what I do know is that I am not God. And therefore, I cannot judge them and say that this is a discussion of salvation, uh, where the Trinitarian is obviously the saved person, and the Biblical Unitarian is obviously the unsaved guy. Therefore, his position is heretical, he's eternally damned. I can't go in that direction. Unfortunately, historic um, Trinitarian church fathers did seem to take that discussion that far. Um, I'm not ready to go that far. I am saying that their theology is... Um, incorrect enough to be labeled heretical, and I believe it is uh, inaccurate enough to be rejected altogether. But what I am saying is that I'm ready to embrace and to welcome in the individual who's still in a position where he's confused. Understand the difference? I can reject the theology of Biblical Unitarianism, but I can accept the individual into my congregations and say, hey, you misunderstand God in some ways. I misunderstand God in some ways. Neither one of us has a perfect understanding of God, but let's grow together in our understanding of God as we worship together and study the Word of God together, and together we can um, uh, better appreciate um, God as we work together without kind of judging one another. So that's the point I'm trying to make. And my hope is that as biblical Unitarians interact with this video, and I'll say this and I'll keep, I'll say this and I'll shut up and keep reading, I hope that they would extend the same sort of kind of offering to me. I hope they wouldn't just throw we Trinitarians under the bus and throw us out together, throw off the baby with the bathwater. Say, well, because Trinitarian theology is wrong, 
and obviously inaccurate according to their position, well, then that means those Trinitarian believers are all uh, lost and on their way to hell, right? I hope they don't think that about us as well. They don't turn this into a salvific argument uh, 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 as well. Again, I know Trinitarian brothers who do turn this into a very strong Trinitarian discussion, and there's nothing I can do about that. That's their own position. That's between them and God and the person that they're discussing. That's their that's their prerogative. I'm not going to go that down that direction. Um, they have their reasons for doing. I do believe that at the end of the day, as we begin to peel back the mystery of God's nature and put together the pieces of the puzzle that are given for us in the Tanakh as well as the Apostolic Scriptures, I do believe that mystery leads to incarnation, leads to a um, the uh, genuine salvation experience that if you are genuinely saved, then you will um, you will affirm Trinity. So let me say it a different way. You may not up. Uh, you may not initiate your relationship with God in a Trinitarian fashion. You may not embrace Jesus as your Messiah with the Trinitarian model uh, in view. You might come to a relationship with God uh, through genuine faith in His Son Yeshua from the um, monotheistic, non-Trinitarian um, understanding of God. You can come to that. You can arrive at a genuine relationship with God from a monotheistic, non-Trinitarian um, understanding of God. That's fine, right? Jesus is the genuine Messiah. So you make that decision for God. But I believe that as you and the Holy Spirit grow together, remember the growth is on your side, not the Holy Spirit, but it's a partnership in the, um, uh, what, what am I saying, the uh, sanctification process. As you grow in your relationship with the Lord, I do believe that the direction the Bible is going to be pulling you in and Steering you in the direction that it is um, carefully guiding you is a direction of um, mystery, incarnation, and trinity. That's the direction that the Bible pulls the believer into so that as we grow, we should eventually shed those pre-trinity misconceptions and misunderstandings of God and eventually embrace uh, trinity, the trinitarian model. So I believe it goes in that direction, and for that reason, I can appreciate the um, argument that my brothers and sisters who are Trinitarians bring to discussion when they bring salvation and when they bring in verses that talk about unless you confess that Jesus is Lord, you can't be saved, etc., etc. And they say, well, the word Lord here is, is a reference to God. Therefore, Paul's telling us in Romans uh, 10 that uh, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, meaning Lord Yeshua, is referring to Jesus as God, right? And bringing in the, the uh, Philippians 2 passage along with that. I understand that theology, but I'm trying to help them understand that you need to um, factor in the, the, the uh, truth of the matter that not everybody approaches God with a, a, a complete, uh, a, a, what we say, accurate understanding of God's nature. I mean, give me a break. You know, people go from being stone-cold pagans uh, into this relationship with God, and they still have a lot of baggage that they have to shed, uh, the least of which is understanding God's nature, right? Um, I mean, most of us have to get rid of all of our, our drugs and alcohol and, and, and pornography first, right, before we can come into a proper relationship with God. All right, so let's just stop judging one another. All right, that being said, let's, again, we're reviewing um, Biblical Unitarian's position on uh, Trinity on this verse in Psalm 110, verse 1, and I'm highlighting what I understand is a summary of how they um, are presenting the material. Point number five, this is in their voice, in their uh, thought process. They believe that the best 
Hebrew lexicons and concordances recognize this distinction between Adoni and Adonai. And we're going to go there eventually, so just hang on in case you're confused with what those two terms mean. Point number six of 12 points that I put together here, uh, summarizing what they have to say. According to uh, Biblical Unitarian, in all its 195 occurrences in the Old Testament, Adoni refers to a superior who is human or occasionally angelic, but never God. That's their understanding of the uh, discussion. Point number seven. Their position is that this distinction provides strong evidence that the Messiah is not God, but a supremely exalted man. And I give them that part where, remember, as I interject, according to the Trinitarian model of God's nature, Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's fully God and fully man, or he's 100% God and 100% man. So he has dual nature. In the incarnation that we Trinitarians affirm, we don't have a problem recognizing passages in the Tanakh, as well as the Apostolic Scriptures, that highlight the humanity of the Messiah. Because we realize that, that he is human. What we disagree is that that's all that the Bible teaches and or that it's the final word. Understand the difference there? We don't believe that those passages in the Bible that are um, describing the human Messiah are the final word or all that there is in the matter. We know that there's more there that God is going to reveal in the pages of the Apostle Scriptures as the Incarnation was um, penned by the writers who actually experienced the Incarnation at the time that Yeshua walked and talked to here on planet Earth, right? Remember, the writers of the Apostle Scriptures are what we might call experiential Trinitarians. What does that mean? Listen up very, very carefully, because this is a charge that non-Trinitarians uh, uh, try to level against we Trinitarians often, and yet their logic is faulty. Often, non-Trinitarians like to tell us that the original writers of the Tanakh could not have been Trinitarians, and the proof is in their writings, and therefore, since the original writers of the, of the Tanakh were not Trinitarians, then we, as modern-day Christians, should not be Trinitarians either. Right? They also fill in the missing gap by saying, since the writers of the Tanakh, a.k.a. the Old Testament, were not Trinitarians, then this proves that the writers of the New Testament, who use the Old Testament as their authoritative body of scriptures, this proves that they too were not Trinitarian writers or Trinitarian disciples of God, because the only body of literature that they, the New Testament uh, writers, the only body of, new of writings that they had to draw from authoritatively was the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and we already know that it is a non-Trinitarian document. So therefore, that is the um, case that the non-Trinitarian builds against the Trinitarian by saying, hey, why are you Trinitarians, you modern Christian Trinitarians, why are you um, supposing that the um, uh, first century apostolic writers, the new, the first century New Testament writers. Why are you, why are you trying to um, uh, say that they are Trinitarians? Nope, they weren't. They they were uh, Unitarian. They were Unitarians, or uh, they were monotheists, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, here's the um, weakness of the argument. It is true that the first part of the Bible, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, was written with the mystery of the uh, Trinity in mind. God was hiding the Incarnation 
in its fullness till a later date. Therefore, all of the revelation was not given. That's what we mean by biblical mystery. God knew the truth. It existed to God, but it didn't it wasn't articulated to human beings, even the prophets. It was hinted at here and there, and there were types and shadows with, you know, with the angel of the Lord and the uh, the theophanies and the Christophanies and the, uh, uh, the 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 captain of Lord's hosts and and all of these these anthropomorphic um, terminology that was given in the Old Testament to describe God having hands and feet and and appearing as a human being in Genesis chapter eighteen before Abraham, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of that was prepping God's people to receive incarnation and Trinity, but it is true that the Old Testament slash Tanakh really is a, a a book that's not primarily Trinitarian in that scope. It's it's Mysterian, right? It's it's God was giving it a mystery. But here's where the um, non-Trinitarian uh, um, discussion goes sideways, goes south, because they fail to realize that. The New Testament writers, even though they were dealing with Old Testament literature that was mystery, that had God veiled in mystery, when Jesus hit the scene, they were experiencing the incarnation of God, and therefore when they later penned what they wrote in the Apostolic Scriptures, the AK, the New Testament, they were writing out of their own experience as, you ready for it? Trinitarians. Thus, they were experiential Trinitarians. That's the point I'm trying to make. They were writing from their experience of walking and talking with God incarnate and uh, understanding uh, Yeshua. And remember, not everything that Yeshua spoke to them, revealed to them, was even written down. But what is written down is enough for us to come to the conclusion that God is mysterious. He's not just a single person, that he's complex in his nature. And that Jesus was very God veiled in flesh, the Word made flesh, God walking among us, and that the Holy Spirit is a is fully God and yet is a person of God, an agent of God that can be dispatched. So let's keep reading. Biblical Trinitarian's um, position, as summarized by my bullet point number eight here, reads, The Greek translation of the Hebrew text in the Septuagint also supports the interpretation of Adoni as a human lord. This is the biblical Trinitarian, a biblical Unitarian, non-Trinitarian model. Let me look at my time and see how I'm doing. Okay, I'm doing great. About five more minutes left in the study. We'll easily finish through these 12 bullet points and be poised, ready to begin to look at some Trinitarian resources, starting with that ubiquitous resource, that infamous resource, Wikipedia. Yeah, all right. Uh, point number nine, we're summarizing the biblical, Trini biblical Unitarian position. When dealing with Psalm 110, verse 1, which is quoted in the New Testament, they teach that the distinction between Adoni and Adonai is maintained. Remember, this is their position, which I've said this in the past. I'll say it again, but very, very briefly this time. You can go back and listen to my previous studies to hear me articulate it in long and drawn-out fashion. Biblical Unitarian brings a lot of truth to this discussion when they're talking about um, some of the traditions of Adoni and Adonai and the Hebrew terminology and the way it gets carried over into the Greek as uh, kurios and tokuriomu and etc. etc. They're bringing a lot of truth to discussion, which is why I respect their um, their opinion and their um, uh, uh, discussion on the matter. Uh, they're bringing a lot of truth. They're not just fabricating things and making up information. They're not what we might call in terms of, of, of AI uh, large language models terminology. They're not hallucinating. 
They're not making up facts like uh, ChatGPT does when you ask it a question and he spits out details that don't really exist. We say that ChatGPT is hallucinating. Well, that's not what's going on right now with uh, with um, biblical Unitarian. Instead, the um, logical fallacy that they're committing is simply that they're leaving out information. It's that they're presenting an e a certain amount of truth, but it's only half the story. That's the point I'm trying to make. And, and to that respect, um, it's both a, a blessing and a curse. I'm glad they're bringing a certain amount of truth, but I'm disappointed in the fact that they're not telling the whole story, and in so doing, leaving off copious amount of details that would otherwise um, lead the individual to the conclusion that um, God, in fact, is Trinity. So, um, what do they say in point number 10? The New Testament renders Adonai as my Lord and Adonai as the Lord. Right, that's they're going to bring out some details that yes, they're giving us some truth, but um, the reason that we Trinitarians differ with what they're saying is because we're begging them to complete the picture, fill out the rest of the details, don't stop with the Old Testament and the Tanakh, keep going through the Apostolic Scriptures. Point number 11, um, and we're going to can draw our study to a close <clears throat> with these points, just uh, really getting into my own reputation. Point number 11, this is according to the voice of um, Biblical Unitarian. This demonstrates that the difference, right, we're talking about what the New Testament brings to the table as far as Adonai and Adonai. This demonstrates that the difference between the two words that was recognized in Greek translations before the vowel points were added to the Hebrew text. And so they're recognizing that the original Hebrew was written without vowel markings, and then the Greek came along and inserted translations from the unpointed Hebrew into Greek. And then later on, the Hebrew itself became pointed. So historically, we're looking at from a timeline from uh, in the correct chronolo chronological order. Originally, we had Hebrew that was unpointed. I'll show you examples of this on the screen in post-production. We have unpointed Hebrew script. And then next came along... Um, the Greek translations from the unpointed script, unpointed Hebrew, and then later on in history, even after the first century, so later on, I believe in the fourth century, we then ended up with the little vowel points around the Hebrew script. That's what they're recognizing and then just highlighting. And then their final um, point that I've uh, summarized and distilled and created into bullet points, these 12 bullet points, is speaking from their position, they teach that thus Psalm 110 verse 1 affirms the human lordship of the Messiah, not his divinity. So, if they only stated it as Psalm 110 verse 1 affirms the human lordship of the Messiah, I could kind of run with some of that, because that is true that Psalm 110 affirms uh uh, Yeshua's rulership, and since Yeshua is uh, truly human, 100% human as well, then I can affirm that Psalm 110, speaking of Yeshua, is uh, affirming his um, humanity as well. But the part where I disagree strongly is that last sentence, not his divinity. Okay, I disagree there. Again, this is Biblical Unitarian's way of reading into the script, like they are fond of doing it with the Shema, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Notice in the Shema, as is represented in the English translation that I just quoted there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. It doesn't say anything about his nature or his personhood. Did you notice that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. What is it saying when it says one? The word Echad, and I'm closing with this. Um, 
the context, I believe, is in reference to God's um, uh, relationship to Israel as the sole uh, deity that they are to worship, the sole savior and ultimately created the one who rescued them out of Egypt, the one who bring, brought them to the foot of Sinai and gave them his words, the one that they're entering into a marriage relationship with. He is the single unique partner with Israel in this marriage covenant relationship. Here, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one, using the marriage language, the Lord, the God, the Lord is one husband to you. So we could fill in with the Lord our God, the Lord is one God, the Lord our, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one um, uh, uh, deity, the Lord our God, the Lord is one being, the Lord our God, the Lord is one that is this, the single unique God above all gods. He's the single soul um, recognized supreme power. There are lesser um, people on earth, and there are angels and other um, types of spirit beings that exist in the world that the Bible recognizes. But here, O Israel, listen up. There's one unique God who created everything. Okay, he is the he is in the unique position above all others, and what is that position? He is God. He is Creator. He's Savior. He's the only one you are to recognize with this label, God. So here is the Lord of God. The Lord is one. The word God that we supplying by context is the best word to fill in there. Here is the Lord of God. The Lord is one God. But what biblical Unitarian does, and I'm saying this in closing as I'm drawing to a close tonight. What Biblical Unitarian does is they insert this discussion about personhood and identity instead of nature and God's sole existence as a single God. They insert this argument about identity, I'm sorry, about personhood by saying, by imagining that what the Shema is really saying is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one person. Did you hear it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one person. That's their supposition, but that's just it. That's eisegesis reading into the text. It's their own uh, supposition. They're hallucinating. So, with that being said, let's draw this part of our study to a close. What we're going to be begin to do next week is I'm going to start jumping through some um, resources, starting with um, Psalm 110 is seen through the lens of Wikipedia. Yeah, why not? Wikipedia may not be the most trusted resource on the planet, but they're somewhere in the middle. They're, they have just enough information to be dangerous. Um, one of their strengths, I believe, is the fact that they are um, crowdsourced, crowd, crowd-resourced. They bring... Um, lots of information from different um, viewpoints so that no one person is monopolizing the conversation. And in so doing, because of the eclectic nature of bringing many different resources, they have the advantage of, of what we might say is a committee discussion, and it strengthens a lot of what they have to say because um, it eliminates the... Um, uh, what we might call the um, bias that's sometimes inherent in having only one person um, wield the discussion. It's almost like having a bipartisan discussion using political terms. If we can bring both parties to the table in a bipartisan manner, we have a strength in having both parties being represented, and we, we can better represent any particular um, topic on the table uh, uh, more faithfully or fairly because both sides are lending to discussion. It's kind of what Wikipedia does. It, it brings uh, lots of uh, perspectives into the same uh, discussion so that we can see uh, a lot of the strings right there in one place. So we're going to begin to look at Psalm 110 as seen through the lens of Wikipedia starting next week. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism.
Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And uh, what a fascinating study that we're going through, Lord. I'm amazed and I'm marveled at the um, details that you bring uh, into this particular uh, purview, into our um, perspective, into our um, um, into our, our, our attention. Um, at least from my perspective, of these two topics that we're dealing with, the eschatology segment in the first part of my study, and now this um, Trinitarian discussion in the second part. Both of these topics have always uh, piqued my interest and challenged me, yet at the same time, Lord, help me continue to grow as I uh, press in further to seek to understand your truth. I don't have the fullest revelation. I'm just uh, stumbling along, just like everyone else, as a, as a Bible student, um, relying on the Holy Spirit to sh- uh, reveal things to me as I uh, make myself um, as I make the word available to me. So thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. You are the one who has all the answers, and that's why I will continue to look to you and rely on your Holy Spirit to reveal these things to me. Thank you for allowing me to share these findings with the students, giving me a platform to be able to share them through YouTube and iTunes and my website and the other blogs uh, and uh, websites that I interact with, like eBible and uh, academia.edu uh, and things like that, the places where you can find my commentaries online. Thank you, Lord, for um, all of the um, uh, interaction that I enjoy week after week with all of the people who interact with my own resources. Bless them, protect them, continue to raise them up and provide for them. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen.